Well, again, as I was reflecting upon our summer series, it occurs to me that we do have good Pauline warrant, that is good New Testament warrant uh, for this Summer in the Psalms series for, you might know this, in two particular places, uh, Ephesians chapter 5 verse 19 and Colossians chapter 3 16 respectively, we are in fact encouraged, dare I even say we are commanded in the New Testament to contemplate God's praiseworthy attributes, His covenant promises, and His redemptive activity on behalf of man in the Psalms. First, from Ephesians 5, 18 to 20, we read again these familiar words. And do not be drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in, notice, psalms, in hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Israel has done a, a superb job helping to select themes from the Psalms for us even this morning as we've sung together. Moreover, from the twin epistle to the book of Ephesians, that is of course Paul's letter to the Colossians, we see in Colossians 3.16 and verse 17 that we are to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing, again, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God, and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Yes, friends, all Scripture, even the Psalms, is breathed out by God. It is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man or woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Brothers and sisters, I praise God for this big book of praises that we call the Psalter, the book of Psalms. Well, our psalm for today, Psalm 8, is another personal favorite of mine. That's one of the perks of being the pastor, you know. You get to choose your favorites to preach at times. Uh, and Psalm 8 is no exception as a psalm of praise. Here we have a marvelous little poem of man's highest and immense praise to God for his mysterious and majestic care of us. That's my thesis for the morning. Let me restate it for those of you that are note takers. We have in Psalm 8 a marvelous little poem of man's highest praise, our immense praise to God for His mysterious, but also His majestic, personal, intimate care and concern for each one of us. I wonder if you would look there at the text again with, with me in Psalm 8 and notice how King David himself, that sweet singer of Israel according to 2 Samuel 23 verse 1, writes in the second person, that is using the pronouns you, you have set your glory above the heavens, verse 1. You have established strength for your foe, for your foes, verse 2. David says, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? You have made, in verse 5, mankind a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. Verse 6, you have given man dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. Notice, friends, that Psalm 8 then is, in effect, a song of celebration for the creative and intimate care 
of an eternal God over his creation. Psalm 8 is about God, firstly, not about you and not about me. Listen, as one of more than 70 different hymns directly attributed or more accurately said to be specifically of David, nearly half of all the Psalms, you should take note, Psalm 8 was very likely composed, I think, fairly early on in David's songwriting ministry. It is itself a classic example of an ancient Jewish poetry, piece of poetry that seeks to answer one of life's most perplexing questions. Since God is so exalted, since he is so majestic and so lifted up, why does he pay us any mind at all? This tiny, insignificant, uh, insecure little creature called man, why do you take note of him? What's so special about man Even what's so special about me that God loves me so? My ultimate hope today is that you will float out of church whistling the tune that God loves you, that God notices you. Well, to begin with, I want you to note with me that there is a superscription. At times, we're going to do a little technical work here this summer to teach you how to learn and love the Psalms. But you'll notice above many of the Psalms that there is a superscription, or we might call it in today's vernacular, a heading. And that is the case with Psalm 8. It simply says in your Bibles, to the choir master, according to the Gitteth, a Psalm of David. Perhaps you notice that below Psalm 8's uh, title. Well, about 116 out of the 150 psalms contain such a superscription. Uh, That is a a title. In fact, almost all of Book 1, which is Psalms 1 through Psalm 41, nearly every psalm psalm in Book 2, which uh, encompasses Psalms 42 to 72, contain a title. It's interesting, a little factoid, if you will. Now, you need to know these titles are not inspired scripture. They were added later by the collectors of the book of Psalms, but that doesn't mean they're not helpful. In fact, they can be often very, very helpful and very instructive. In fact, in this instance, they are, I believe, rather helpful for us. The superscription or the title or heading to Psalm 8 actually gives us two helpful tidbits of information. Notice, in terms of its public use, the words of Psalm 8 are said to be to the choir master according to the Gittith. So you and I can have personal pleasure and we can personally profit from Psalm 8, but these words were intended for Israel's community use. These were public anthems of praise. Now, only two other psalms share this very heading. That is, according to the Gittith. Psalm 81 and Psalm 84 are the are the, in addition to Psalm 8, are the three psalms that are whatever, according to the Giddeth means, they are that. To the best of our knowledge, this heading likely indicates that Psalm 8 was meant to be sung corporately by the people of Israel while being accompanied by an instrument called a Giddeth. Now, other translators attach the word Giddeth to the city of Gath that King David spent some time, that's the Philistine city, we know that from the books of First and Second Samuel. Other scholars note that the word Giddeth in Hebrew very likely is connected to the word that means a wine press. A wine press. It also seems to indicate then a, that this is a certain stringed instrument that evidently resembled a shape of a wine press that was used to accompany these words. Other people have noted that the Greeks 
for example, borrowed the Hebrew term or the Hebrew word and the instrument that it represented in Greek culture, what they called a kathara. That's a, a, a sort of a guitar-type instrument. From there, we find in the course of time a Spanish instrument called a guitaria, and then that's where we get our English word guitar. So Psalm 8, Psalm 81, and Psalm 84 were musically arranged to be sung to the music of a guitar. So Brian, there's your assignment for next Sunday. It's all on you. Lead us in Psalm 8. Now the other bit of information that we'll note here, as I've already said, is that it's a Psalm of David. There are almost half of the Psalms are attributed to being of David. What does that mean? Well, this statement, a Psalm of David is understood as belonging to David. Most certainly, David was the author of Psalm 8 and of virtually all the Psalms, I believe, that are attributed to being of David. Another way we might say that is these are Psalms belonging to David or being from David or by David in our current vernacular. In short, this is a Davidish kind of Psalm, a Davidish Psalm. Well, with that bit of background to Psalm 8 in mind, I want you just to sit back and imagine with me, if you will, David. And remember all that David had been involved in in his life. Imagine David at some point, perhaps at the prime of his life, reflecting back on the serene hillsides there around Bethlehem, taking care of his father Jesse's sheep. Imagine David there standing under the starry nights as a lowly shepherd, thinking about his life, thinking about his plans, thinking about what he would do both with and for the Lord. There is David staring up into the bright moonlit sky surrounded by the sounds of animals and the tranquil beauty of God's creation while these very words come bubbling up out of his soul in praise of Almighty God. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. Imagine David sitting back saying, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man? Even David thinking of himself that you care for him. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. David, thinking, back, thinking perhaps of the kingdom of Israel here, you have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the seas. O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is God's word. The Apollo 11 mission, which took place from July 16th, 1969 to July 20th of 1969. Some of you might remember that. Some of us weren't around at that time, sorry to say. That saw the first ever lunar landing by humankind on the moon. The crew, including Michael Collins and Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin, carried with them something referred to as the goodwill disc. With messages, as I understand it, from 
more than 73 countries and entities, including the Vatican, upon it. It's interesting and ironic that the Vatican contributed the full text of Psalm 8 to the Goodwill Disc. Just a portion of that, that reading, again, is this. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Pretty appropriate words for that moment. Now today I want you with me firstly to observe how Psalm 8 as a whole, we're going to dig into the structure of this today, rather succinctly, but I think poignantly captures the peculiar, even unmatched majesty of man's highest praise of the Lord our God. In fact, David's intended meaning for Psalm 8, it's, it seems to me, gives shape to the very lyrics, careful structure here in Psalm 8. In other words, we could say his point is seen in the pattern behind his praise. We discover a brilliant example here, and this is a word I've used before, even in our study of the pastorals, we encounter a chiasm or a chiastic structure in Psalm 8. Firstly, notice that in verse 1, and you also pick this up, I'm sure, in verse 9, at the beginning and at the end, we have a matching set of inspired bookends capturing the overall theme of Psalm 8. The, the majesty of Yahweh, the Lord, is set and seen over all his earth. In other words, church, the Lord's own excellent or praiseworthy name is the ultimate object in the opening and closing of this majestic poem. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Again, I submit to you this psalm is ultimately and supremely about God's space, not ours. By the way, very quickly before moving on, you'll notice perhaps that two different representations of the divine name are given in verse 1. Did you notice that? The first, of course, is the name Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, and the second is simply the word Lord with only the capital L there. We see here then this first name is what we might call the divine name of God, Yahweh. We'll have a word about that in a moment. And the second is more properly considered a title of God. He is the Lord. He is the owner. He is the master. The original text reads something like this. should have Joel say, uh, read this out loud for us. Yahweh, Adonai, ma adir, shamka bakal har eretz. How do I do, Joel? Okay, so-so. Roughly translated, that is, Lord, our Lord, how magnificent, how excellent is your name in all the earth. Again, this psalm begins and ends in effect with an expression of David's highest praise to the Lord, the covenant God of Israel. Remember, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God who revealed himself to the man Moses in a burning bush in Exodus 3 verse 14 who exists eternally and who rules powerfully over this tiny blue globe. Here David uses God's covenant name, I am who I am, Yahweh, which itself reveals something of God's matchless character to mankind. God's name, God's personhood then, is exalted above and higher than all else that is created. We see that God is both powerful and God is personal. Personal. 
The God who owns all things knows you. He loves you. He wants to be in relationship with you. We could say that he is creator, and yet he is intimately linked with his creatures. He is the eternal Lord, and yet his name is known wonderfully upon the earth. Okay, so that's the first level, verse 1 and verse 9, stating something about God's name being over all creation. Well, secondly, I want you to notice that the second level then of this beautiful chiastic structure is seen in verse 1, the second part in verse 2, and then secondarily in verses 5 through 8, and they focus on God's dominion firstly, and then man's place or man's dominion secondly. In a sense, we have them compared and contrasted, God's dominion and man's dominion. Let's look again at the text together. David says, you have set your glory... God's space, God's domain, his dominion above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. We'll stop there for just a moment. What do you hear there? Well, I think obviously this text contains undeniable echoes and allusions to Genesis 1, Genesis 2, and Genesis 3. David seemingly here magnifies the Lord for the majesty of his dominion, that is, his sovereign rule and authority which transcends the heavens and the earth. God was before there was anything else. That is, despite the enemy's best efforts, God's most excellent name must be praised even if by lowly babies and infants. We maybe notice something then. That the story of God in Scripture showcases God's unique ability to use weak and lowly, even insignificant things in creation to silence his very foes. And we're going to see a word about that towards the end of this message. Then similarly, set parallel to God's dominion is a word that David gives here highlighting the dignity and expansive dominion even of humanity over birds and beasts and Fish, sorry, this is not a message for PETA today, likewise, unashamedly affirmed and celebrated. Notice how David continues in verse 8, you have made him, that is mankind, a little lower than the heavenly beings. Literally the word there is Elohim. You've made him a little lower than God's and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. Again, you should have uh, memories or um, reflections on Genesis 1 and 2, especially flooding your mind when you read David's words here. Mankind truly is the crown of all creation, as Dr. Robert Godfrey has stated helpfully. But I want you to notice that David uses a very interesting way of expressing this. Instead of being made a little higher than the animals, David reminds us here that as human beings, we were made a little lower than God. That's not an insignificant little detail, friends. In other words, though both are creatures, there is a great important difference between mankind and mere beasts and animals. Much to the chagrin of contemporary culture, there is good cause for rightly recognizing man's dominion and image-bearing responsibility over the entire earth. We have been crowned with glory 
and honor. Animals have not been. The Lord's intent was for Adam, not apes. For Eve, not elephants, to rule and have dominion over the earth. David's words, in effect, are meant to usher our minds back to the original state. Back to a time of innocence. Back to the garden. Back to Eden. Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27, where the Bible says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Beloved, listen carefully this morning, because you will not hear this in the culture. God designed us, humanity, in his image uniquely, male and female. Listen, the label over your life and mine reads, made by God with divine love. Every human being then, every human being, both male and female, black and white, rich and poor, Citizen and stranger is created by God with dignity and deserves the utmost concern as God's image bearer. Everyone. Everyone. That's part of the divine truth that I think Psalm 8 wants us to walk away singing. God made us in his image, male and female, with divine dignity and responsibility. And that's really the second thing we see here. We learn at the same time that not only did God design us, he designated mankind with an awesome authority and responsibility as stewards and caretakers of God's perfect creation. Mankind was made for relationship with God and mankind was made with responsibilities before God on the earth. We were made to walk with God and we were made to work before him. Notice again in Genesis chapter 1, now verse 28, what the Bible says, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Listen, though lowly creatures as we are, human beings are made for relationship with the eternal, exalted, and triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Yes, that's you. God made you for Him, for Himself. And at the same time, we were made to bear responsibility as caretakers, even as co-regents of all other wonderful creatures that the Lord God made to inhabit the earth. Adam and Eve then resembled wonderfully in the garden man's uh, perfect, just character. And they were placed in the garden to reflect God's holy image and to rule and bear responsibility faithfully over God's good creation. We lasted a whole two chapters that way as human beings. In rebellion, Adam and Eve brought sin and shame into the world, plunging God's perfectly created order under the curse of sin thus inhibiting man's proper ability to exercise good order and proper dominion over the earth. Simply put, man was meant to shine, but now man is stained by sin. Man was meant to rule in holiness and in righteousness, but now 
we are utterly ruined because of pride and hubris, the sin of unbelief and in the goodness and trustworthiness of God's eternal word. Listen, Psalm 8, if you're not picking it up, is it effectively David's inspired commentary on Genesis 1 through 3. It's David's commentary on the beginning of the Bible. So by way of summary, we could say this, that we have firstly found David announcing God's praiseworthy name over all creation, over all the earth, verses 1 and 9. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And then secondly, we've seen David describing God's unvarnished, even unrivaled dominion set in contrast with man's original dignity and domain being crowned with glory and honor, being given charge of all creation in verses 5 through 8 of Psalm 8. Man's mission on earth is supposed to mirror God's character, God's compassion, and God's care over the universe. That is our job but we've messed up our job because of sin. Sin has sabotaged this vital mission. We could put it this way, and I hope this is not too soon. But like the vessel Titan, we have a fatal flaw in the whole of our hearts. It is not God's design flaw. It is our self-imposed sabotage. And our hearts cannot stand, independent of God's grace, the pressure of sin in the world. And we are doomed to collapse and implode in on ourselves. We need God to move among us. We need God to come towards us. And that's exactly what we find happening in the middle and final part of the psalm. Notice thirdly and finally in terms of the Uh, original structure, the chiastic structure of Psalm 8, before we come to a few final uh, personal takeaways today, I want you to notice that the very middle of the psalm, and this is actually often the case in the book of Psalms, the middle is where you find the message, the the highest point of the psalm. At the heart of David's poem, we find a question rising to the top of our minds as those who know we've messed up, and we've, we've, we've really messed up God's perfect place, even his palace for his presence, constantly failing to live out our creation mandate to rule with dignity and dependence upon the Lord. We find here the most crucial question of all. If God is so great and we are so small, why does God still care about us? What is man that you, O Lord, are mindful of him? Again, in other words, the very middle of this majestic hymn of praise is David's own seemingly unanswered question regarding mankind's astonishing significance in the universe. Look at verses 3 and 4 with me. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Have you ever asked that? Who am I? Who am I, Lord? What what am I made for in life? What is my purpose on earth? What am I designed to do? Who of us have not thought about that question at some point in life? In a universe comprising millions and millions of galaxies and billions and billions of stars, why would God stoop to love you? Why would God notice? Why would God care? Why wouldn't he start over on some other planet? Isn't this really the question, the question of all questions? 
It's not really the first time we've seen this in the Bible. Perhaps some of you will begin to think about Job chapter 7, verse 17, where we find this same question on the lips of a man named Job. Job 7, verse 17 and 18, what is man, Job says, in the context of his own misery and maladies, what is man that you make so much of him, that you set your heart on him, that you, Lord, visit him every morning and test him every moment? Imagine Job saying, of all the human beings, God, why did you have to pick me? Why did you have to pick me? Why did you notice me, Lord? Can I just tell you how awesome it is that God would notice you, that he would love you, that he would say, I, Satan, have you considered my servant, and then fill in your name. Look, there are basically two very vastly different reactions or responses to this ubiquitous feeling that man is not alone in this vast, glorious, awe-inspiring universe. Two responses. On the one hand, there is the view of the atheist. There is the view of the religious skeptic. It's the Uh, Bertrand Russell view. For these people, life for mankind is simply and utterly meaningless and devoid of purpose. There is no point. There is no purpose. There is no meaning. This is all there is. Eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. And oh, by the way, we get to be our own God. In fact, Russell, who died in 1970, once wrote these words. Listen to this. The life of man is a long march through the night surrounded by invisible foes, tortured by weariness and pain toward a goal that few can hope to reach and where none may tarry long. One by one as they march, our comrades vanish from our sight, seized by the silent orders of omnipotent death. Brief and powerless is man's life. On him and all his race, the slow, sure doom falls pitiless and dark. Blind to good and evil, reckless of destruction, omnipotent matter rolls on its relentless way. For man condemned today to lose his dearest, tomorrow himself to pass through the gate of darkness, it remains only to cherish ere yet to the blow falls, the lofty thoughts that ennoble his little day. Boy, don't you feel depressed right about now. Friend, that's one view, and you could take it but I warn you not to. There's another view, the right view, the gospel view, and the Christian view, to be sure, that says life is not purposeless. It is full of purpose. It is full of meaning. Life may be full of pleasure. It may be full of pain, but is also brimming and bursting with purpose, too. That God made us to behold His glory and to know His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And listen, the very fact that we, as human beings seem to understand something of the reality that we feature prominently in this grand show called life means that who we are and what we believe and what we do here and now ultimately matters. You want to talk about living depressed. It's living without purpose. It's living without a meaning. That's the depressed life. And friend, no Christian should live that way. No Christian should live that way. The earth is full of the glory of the Lord, and evidently, so are we. So are we. It's interesting, as I pivot to the end, to observe that Psalm 8 features prominently 
in three specific New Testament passages. We don't have time to really survey them, but I want to leave, you, leave this text with you or these texts with you. The first is Matthew chapter 21, and you know that passage, that's getting to the end of Christ's uh, ministry where the triumphal entry has already occurred, and now he's gone into the temple, he's cleansed the temple, and the Pharisees and religious leaders are now furious at him. They are furious that all of the blind and the lame and the little children are praising his name, and, he said, and they say to him, Lord Jesus, not Lord, Jesus, will you stop them? Don't you hear what they're saying? And he says, have you not read out of the mouths of infants and babies? He stills the foe and the avenger. Psalm 8 shows us, like Psalm tw- or Matthew 21 verse 16 shows us, that God uses weak things like you and me to silence his enemies. He uses weak things like us to silence his enemies. The second passage where this psalm features prominently is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 27. Now instantly you should, igno- you should recognize psalm, sorry, 1 Corinthians 15 as the great resurrection chapter of the New Testament. And here we find that the Apostle Paul is talking about this tension that we feel and experience right now in light of Jesus' resurrection rule in heaven and how when we look around, all of these things seem to be not yet put under his feet. I don't have time to unpack that, but Psalm 8 features prominently there in Paul's own eschatology, his own last times thinking that one day every rebel enemy will be subdued under the feet of Jesus Messiah. Psalm 8 shows up in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 27. But finally, thirdly, it also shows up in Hebrews chapter 2 verses 5 through 8, where here it is not just applied to mere man, it is, a, uh, it is applied to the Son of Man, to the Lord Jesus Christ himself. See, Jesus is the new Adam. Jesus here is the head of a new humanity by grace and through faith in his resurrection. In other words, Psalm 8 points us to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who was made a little higher, a little lower than the angels for a time that that he might meet our needs. He might taste death for everyone and glorify the Lord in heaven. So, in closing, what are a few practical lessons, just very briefly, that we could take away from Psalm 8? Let me just give you four words. The first is praise. How should I respond to God's word in Psalm 8? Firstly, you should praise the eternal God. God, in his omnipotent grace, his gracious rule over creation, has made all things for his glory, and that includes you. He has made you for his highest praise. God wants to use you, and he wants to bless you, and he wants to know you through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, how should we respond to Psalm 8? But with humble gratitude. With humble gratitude. To God for his compassion and his concern for us through the gospel. Listen, God does not need us, but he wants us. God wants to use us. And how awesome is that? And how do we know that God wants to use us? Well, the coming of Christ, the crucifixion of Christ, and the resurrection and return of Christ is proof positive of God's great love for fallen human hearts. So friend, this psalm should silence any doubt you might have left about whether or not God really loves you. 
because he does. And the outstretched arms of Jesus Christ is, the, is all the proof you need to know that God loves you. Third, how should you respond to Psalm 8? You should respond with complete trust. Praise, gratitude, and trust in the Son of God, Jesus Christ himself. Hebrews 2 verse 9 says, But we see him, Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by grace, the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. When the creator became a creature, he didn't become a lizard, he didn't become a lion, he didn't become a mule, and he didn't become a monkey, he became a man. He became a man. The greatest proof of God's care and concern for miserable human beings is the incarnation of the Son of God himself. God took on human flesh. Therefore, he's the only object worthy of our trust and our belief. And then finally, we should respond to this text with gospel hope. With gospel hope. Again, verse 6 of Psalm 8 says, You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. And I don't think we should rush to Jesus there. I think we should remember that this was given to Adam. This was given to humanity. Friend, we will rule on the earth one day, but we will only rule under the lordship and leadership of Jesus Christ himself. We were originally given dominion by God over creation in the garden, and through faith in the resurrection of Christ, we will rule again one day in the new heavens and the new earth. 1 Corinthians 15, 24 puts it perfectly as I close. Then comes the end. When he, Christ, delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son of himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Praise, gratitude, trust, and hope. How else should we respond to a psalm that begins this way? O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let's bow in prayer. Almighty God and Father, even as that title slide shows, it's a big universe, but you're an infinitely bigger God. Oh, you are so big, so beautiful, so wonderful, and you notice us as we've already talked about. So Lord, I pray that we would indeed really float out of here today with a gentle, loving reminder about why we matter. We matter because you made us. You made us for your praise. You made us to take pleasure in perfection, and Lord, you are perfect. So, Father, we praise you today. We also thank you for being reminded of our coming destiny. Jesus already has been crucified and risen from the dead. He is right now reigning from heaven, but his reign has not been consummated upon the earth, but one day it will be, and we will rule with him. So, Father, as we go through 
life now buffeted and bewildered. I pray that we would take heart and not faint and not fear because, Lord, you have a purpose and a plan for us, your people. We love you. We thank you and we praise you today for the truths of Psalm 8 as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.